please stand as we hear God's word this morning. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired word, and so it is so important that we pay careful attention to it. The sermon text this morning is in Genesis 37, and we will be reading verses 12 to the end of the chapter, which is verse 36. Genesis 37, beginning in verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now. Let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into, the, into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Joseph tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt, sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The grass withers and the flower fades. Please be seated. Please join me in prayer as we ask the Lord's blessing on his word this morning. 
Our great God in heaven, your ways are so far above our ways that we would be left in darkness if you had not in your infinite kindness revealed yourself to us in your word. We praise you for giving us your word as a light for our feet and for our path. I pray this morning that you would be with me to proclaim your word boldly, to comfort your people, and to lift Christ high in all of the hearts and minds of those who hear. I pray that you would open up the heart of everyone here this morning to receive what you would have them hear from your word, to receive from you grace and strength and comfort and joy. I pray that you would do this task that is impossible for me by the power of your Spirit. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you are like me, perhaps you uh, do something similar that I do every morning. You, you read a psalm every morning, or maybe at some point in the day you like to read a psalm. I've tried to make that my habit for, uh, for many years. And I find it such a wonderful way to start the day, just to orient my life towards the things of God, even to discipline my emotions, uh, because the Psalms, they're so full of uh, emotion, all the things that we face in life, we can find in the Psalms, and we can learn how to express all of the different uh, emotions that we go through in the Psalms, whether it be sadness or anger or fear, any of those things. And one of the things that I've noticed, especially over the last year as I've I've read the Psalms, is how often God's people face unjust suffering. How often it is, in fact, that the innocent suffer at the hands of the wicked. And, and so I've done a, a survey, it's not a scientific survey, but I, I've done a survey of the Psalms, and I've found that this theme of suffering unjustly at the hands of the wicked is something that you see in the Psalms at least a hundred times. Do you know there, there are 150 Psalms? Uh, to see something like that in the Psalms that often shows you how significant this is in the lives of God's people. Why is that such a dominant theme in the Psalms? Well, the reason is because that is such a dominant aspect of our lives in this fallen world, is to suffer at the hands of the wicked, to suffer unjustly. And this happens for us as God's people in large ways. It happens for us in in small ways, but they all matter to God. We can suffer at work. We can suffer among our peers as students. We can suffer ridicule as Christians for confessing Christ in the world. We can suffer just simply for doing the right thing. And we can bring down the anger of others upon us. And I know with you sitting here this morning, I know that you've experienced this. As I said, sometimes it might seem smaller Uh, Sometimes it might seem a larger way in which you've experienced this, but it seems like the wicked have triumphed over you. They've done wickedly, and there's nothing you can do. And and it can bring so much anguish into our hearts, can't it, to to watch that. 
If you haven't experienced that, just think about your brothers and sisters across the world this very moment. Think about your brothers and sisters in China who are in prison because of their faith in Christ. Think about your brothers and sisters in Nigeria who face death at the hands of Boko Haram for their their confession of Christ. We see it even in the West. Uh, We see ridicule for being a Christian, for standing firm in our faith in Christ, or even simply standing firm in, in what the Bible says about how we should live and how that provokes the anger of the world. And we can suffer for that. And it it can seem so hard, can't it? Because it seems so wrong, and it is, in fact, so wrong to do the right thing and then to suffer at the hands of wicked men. And it can be such a, a difficult thing to accept because it seems so pointless. But it's not. And we're going to see in this text this morning, we're going to see the example of Joseph, how he suffered at the hands of his brothers. He suffered unjustly at the hands of his wicked brothers. And I'm certain that Joseph felt what many of us feel. He cried out to the Lord, why? Why am I experiencing this? Why I did nothing wrong? Why, God, I know you're a just God. Why would you allow this to happen? And I think that's the very thing that we often wonder for ourselves. So we will look at the suffering of Joseph, the passion of Joseph. And what I hope that you will take away from this this text is this primarily, that the wicked attacks of wicked men, they are not pointless. They are not random events. The, The wicked attacks of wicked men are in fact in God's mysterious providence, the very means that he uses to bless us and to save us. The wicked attacks of wicked men are the very means that God uses to save and to bless his people. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Joseph here. It's the beginning, at least, of his suffering. He has has much more suffering to endure as the narrative continues in in Genesis. We're going to look then at at three main points. We're going to look at Joseph searching for his brothers. We're going to look at Joseph being attacked by his brothers and suffering at their hands. And then finally, we're going to look at Joseph being sold into slavery. And we're going to watch the amazing thing that God is doing in the midst of Joseph's suffering here to encourage our souls that he is doing the same thing for us as God's people today. Well, Joseph, he is sent off to find his brothers in the beginning of the text here. His his father, Jacob, sends him off. And we need to remember a little bit about what we saw last week, if you were here and if you were not. Joseph's brothers, they despise him. They are insanely jealous of him because He has been given this this, uh, glorious robe from his father, as you might have heard last week. Probably we should understand that as a royal robe rather than a robe of many colors. Um, It is uh, this robe that shows that he has this special place among the brothers. 
And he's been given these dreams by God that show that his brothers are going to bow down to him. They are going to serve him. And he tells his brothers about this, and they despise him. They, they are so full of jealousy and anger. They're seething. That's the context for where we are in the story today. And then uh, Jacob sends him off. Now, it's interesting. He sends him off alone. Why isn't Joseph with his brothers to begin with? Why is it just the others? Well, maybe you can guess. It's probably not that hard to figure out. His brothers hate him. He doesn't get on well with his brothers. And so they're off uh, pastoring the flocks, and, and Joseph is at home. And he sends him off on this long journey, uh, nearly 60 miles uh, north to find his brothers. What I find in this, this beginning section is that it's something we, we continue to see with Joseph is, is his innocence is so uh, highlighted. Uh, he is, he's, he's quick to obey his father and to go up to, to find his brothers. He seems so unsuspecting, even after all that's happened. You find him wandering around in a field. This man comes upon him. He's wandering in the fields. He asks him what he's seeking. He seems so innocent and, and almost naive um, as he is walking into the mouth of wild beasts, truly, his own brothers. Uh, well, he, he can't find them at first, so he, he continues on. The man knows where they've gone. They've gone on further from Shechem to Dothan. And so he, he goes after his brothers, really as a, as a lamb before the slaughter here. Innocent Joseph, off to what he thinks is simply find his brothers and see how they're doing. Little does he know that he is about to be violently attacked by his brothers, this innocent Joseph. Well, in verse 18, they see him coming to them. It's not hard to miss him. He's in his royal robes, and they conspire among themselves to kill him. That's how deep-seated their hatred of Joseph is, is that they are ready to murder him. They say to one another, here comes this dreamer, and the dreams really figure prominently in here. The dreams are what really did it for them. It's really what made them hate him, is this dream that he told them that, that they would bow down to him, that he would be exalted over them. They say, here comes this dreamer, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We'll, we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. You hear the, the arrogance that's just dripping from those words, we'll see what will become of his dreams. We're, we're going to finish Joseph. And that's going to be the end of those dreams. There's one exception here among the brothers. As you see, Reuben, he hears about it. And it says, he rescues them out of their hand, saying, let us not take his life. Verse 21. He said, shed no blood, but throw him into this pit in the wilderness. Don't lay a hand on him. Now, Reuben's plan here is to rescue Joseph. So Reuben is the only one here who he has a good heart, a good motive here. He wants to rescue his brother. He doesn't know how to do it yet, so he's just trying to stall. He's trying to find time here. Let's cast him into the pit, and I'll figure out what to do later. I'll figure out how to rescue him. You'll notice in the text that once they actually throw him in the pit, that Reuben is not there because he comes back, and he's already been sold. 
into slavery, and Reuben is, is uh, really upset about this. So he wasn't there even when they end up throwing him into the pit. He's gone off probably trying to figure out, what am I going to do? How am I going to rescue my brother? So he, he, he tries. Reuben tries. But his attempt to rescue Joseph ultimately is insufficient. Try as he may, he's not able to rescue his brother. Could he have tried harder? Perhaps. He's the firstborn. Would they have listened to him if he had just put his foot down? Sometimes that's all it takes in the face of evil is someone to be brave enough to say no. Sometimes that's not. Sometimes that won't bring about what you're seeking. But sometimes that's all it takes. Could he have done that? Maybe. Maybe they would have listened to him. Although you do see by the end of this text, he's willing to join in the lie with his brothers. Uh, Try as he might, his attempt is imperfect, it's incomplete, and he's even willing to at least be silent when his brothers say, Joseph has been devoured by a wild animal. And, And he's willing to join in the lie and the deception of his father. So his attempt to rescue Joseph, as noble as it might have started out, is imperfect, it's incomplete. Well, they they take Joseph after Reuben has gone off. They they take him and they strip him of his royal robe. They strip him of his glory. And they throw him into the pit. The pit was empty, verse 24. There was no water in it. Notice it's really emphasizing that here. Three things said about that pit. They throw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. This is a storage pit. You'd store food here. You'd store water here. Uh, For Joseph, it's obviously quite significant that there's no water in this pit because if he had been thrown into a pit with water in it, he would have drowned. There would have been no way for him to get out, and that, that would have actually been the end of his life. And I think the text emphasizes this so that we don't forget something vital about what's going on throughout all of this. God is with Joseph throughout Now, we know where the story is headed, don't we? We know that God is going to do mighty things through Joseph because we've read this story. If you haven't read it, sorry, I'm I'm, I'm ruining the the rest of the story for you. Um, We know where it's headed. And yet, we have to try to place ourselves in in Joseph's situation here. Now, think about Joseph. He's just been cast uh, into this pit. For all he knows, that's the end. He's going to drown. There's going to be water. He's dead. But God is with him. God is protecting him all along the way. And it's something to remember. Uh, Now, at that very moment, I'm sure he was crying out to the Lord, thinking, why, Lord? This is the end of me. Why why would I be uh, treated this way by my brothers? Why this attack? I've done nothing wrong. And yet God is already working out his purposes to use Joseph, to bless him. And God is with him. God is with us in the midst of our trials. God doesn't just have a plan for us at the end. Heaven, that's where we're headed. That's what God has in store for us. He's with us all along the path. And it's, it's, it's important to remember that he's with us in these times when it seems like he's absent. Because I'm sure Joseph felt that way. To think that, uh, that the Lord had forgotten about him. But the Lord doesn't forget. He's with us, not just at the end. He's not just getting us to the goal, but he's with us all along to bless us, to protect us, to give us exactly what we need in the moment. Well, verse 25. Here we have the brothers now planning to sell their brother into slavery. They have 
caused great suffering for him. They've, they've cast him into this pit. And then they sat down to eat, verse 25. So one of those phrases in biblical stories where it might be easy to gloss over. You could read this and you could think, okay, well, people have to eat. And that's just a normal thing that people do. But the Bible doesn't give us details that we don't need to know something about. It doesn't need to tell us that people eat. We know that people eat. We know that they need meals. Meals in the Bible are very significant. Uh, Meals are bonds of fellowship. Meals are times of celebration. Meals are times when you are to be joined together in communion with those you are feasting with. They're sitting down to eat in triumph over the wicked act that they've just committed. They have this communion in wickedness. Uh, They are so hard-hearted that they think that they have accomplished something grand, and it's time to sit down and to eat. How hard-hearted could they have been to, to just sit down and have lunch? They've just thrown their brother into a pit, and unless someone comes to rescue him, he's dead. And they sit down to eat. Such a, a warning about the, the, the danger of sin in our hearts, you know, the ways in which we can harden our hearts against God, because it is very easy to think with sin that sin is always obvious. We, we can think that our own sin will always confront us as something really horrible that we need to deal with in our hearts, can't we? You, know, you, you think of sin, St. George and the dragon. You know, we're off to slay our sin. But so often it's not like that, is it? You know, so often our, our sin is something that we give into slowly and surely. And we start to harden our heart against God. And, and over time our hearts grow harder and harder and harder. And then the next thing you know, your heart is so hard that you can't even see your sin that you uh, believe, as his brothers did, that you've just accomplished something grand for yourselves. They sat down to eat after plotting to murder their brother as if everything was normal. It's just such a, a, a warning about how insidious sin is, that our hearts can grow hard against God, and that we can think everything's fine when it's not fine. We can think everything is normal when it's not normal. To sit down to eat, to go about our business as if all is well. So warning about uh, the, the insidiousness of sin, the subtlety of sin. Now Judah, if that wasn't bad enough, after they see this caravan of Ishmaelites, Midianites uh, as well, coming by. They changed their plan a little bit. Okay, we're not going to leave him in the pit. Judah says to his brothers, verse 26, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. Judah is really taking it up a notch here in the, the the subtlety of sin, and and just the hard-heartedness of sin. Do you hear the the false piety there in in what he says? Okay, we're not going to murder our son, I mean our brother, 
Of course we wouldn't do something like that, even though they had just been planning to do that. We won't murder him. We'll just sell him into slavery because he's our own brother. We wouldn't act so wickedly, would he? Would we? We'll just sell him into slavery. That's, that's so much better than murdering their brother. I mean, how hard is his heart to be able to, to convince himself that he is doing something pious as he plans to sell his brother into slavery? He's doing his brother a favor even here. And again, I'd ask you, how often is that not the case with us in our own sin? Is that we convince ourselves that our sin is actually a virtue. And if you don't believe me, think about some of the times you might have done this. Think about the times when you have become angry and convinced yourself that it was righteous anger, when in fact it was just sinful rage. Or the times when you have been irritable with your children or your spouse or a friend. You've, you've been irritable and you think, well, they're in the wrong. Um, I, I just simply love God's truth. That's all I want to see flourish. And, and you're irritable and you're quick-tempered. You know, some of those sins that um, months ago we talked about, respectable sins, anxiety. How many of us are full of anxiety right now, all the things going on in the world, full of anxiety, and we say, well, I just, I care deeply about important things. I've got to take care of my family. I've got to protect my family. I've got to prosper in my work, and yet we're full of anxiety, and we convince ourselves that it's actually a virtue, diligence, or whatever it might be. Well, this is a pretty extreme example of that, with Judah, certainly, but it's something that we should all look inward and, and examine ourselves and see. Do I, which I so often am going to be prone to do, turn wickedness, sin, into a virtue, deceive myself? Well, Judah is hardly a, a pious man here as they plan to sell their brother into slavery and never see him again. There are these Ishmaelite traders in a caravan. There are also Midianite traders, possibly Ishmaelites and Midianites together. Uh, verse 28, the, the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up. It's a little bit ambiguous. Is it the brothers drawing him up here, or is it the Midianites drawing him up here? It seems to make more sense if we say it's the brothers because it's the brothers who are planning to sell him and, and make this profit, and, and they gain 20 shekels of silver on their brother, and the traders take Joseph to Egypt. So now we come to the, the, the end here, uh, the, the, the agony of Jacob at the end here. They've sold him into slavery. Reuben comes back. Joseph is not there, and, and so Reuben is, is truly uh, disturbed by this. He's distressed. Uh, the boy is gone. Where shall I go? They took Joseph's robe, though, um, and they slaughtered a goat, and they dipped the robe in the blood. And we don't really hear anything else from Reuben at this point. They send this robe to their father, and they ask him to identify it. And, of course, he knows that's his brother's robe. And, and Joseph is in such anguish, anguish of soul here. No doubt he was torn to pieces. A fierce animal has devoured him. Well, indeed, ten Fierce animals have devoured him, his brothers. 
And he says, he puts these garments on, uh, tore his garments, and he puts a sackcloth on, and he mourns, and he's refusing to receive comfort here. He says, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And he wept for him. Just Can you hear the despair in Jacob's crying out here? And how, uh, how horrible sin is that we plot our own sins. We, we set out to do some sin and we think, well, this is what I want. This is what will bring me pleasure. And we think, you know, it's, it's not going to hurt anyone else. This will be fine. They set out to hurt someone, no, certainly. They set out to hurt Joseph, and they're successful in that. They had no intention of hurting Jacob, though. And that's what sin does, though. Sin doesn't just stay in one place. Sin radiates out. I once heard a friend preach on the idea, and he compared sin to an ink pen that goes through the washing machine. Right? It explodes, and everything is contaminated. That's what sin does. It affects everyone around us. You know, those times when we are tempted to sin, we should think. This is, a, this is a biblical motivation. We should think about many things, about how we will offend our, our Heavenly Father. But we should also think about what this will do to those around us, what this will do to those whom we love. Sin hurts other people, and it's devastating for Jacob, even though they had no intention um, to do anything to Jacob here. Well, this, this story is, is a sorry tale, isn't it? And by the end, he's made his way to Egypt, and if you didn't know the rest of the story, that would seem pretty dire. He's been sold in Egypt to Potiphar, who was an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. That's where we end up, in Egypt, with Joseph in bondage. But this is a text that gives us great gospel hope. There is much good news here. And I want to show you that in two ways. First of all, it's this. Imagine yourself as, as an Israelite. You have God's word. Imagine yourself as an Israelite in the time of Christ. How would you be prepared for the coming of the Messiah? How would you be prepared for the coming deliverer and savior? And there are certainly promises in the Old Testament that speak of the Messiah to come. There, there are many of those. But there's also something that we see over and over, and it's a pattern in certain figures in the Old Testament. It's this. It's a pattern of suffering and then glory, humiliation and then exaltation. David, think of David's life. David first suffers at the hands of Saul greatly before he is exalted. Job is, is another great example of this. Job suffers intensely, mightily. He is brought very low. And then at the end, he's exalted. The suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53, the, the, the one who suffers whose, whose visage is, is marred, who suffers the stripes of God so that we could be healed, suffering and then glory. That's how uh, the people of God would be prepared for the coming Messiah, to know that he was not going to just come and destroy all of his enemies and wipe everyone out and bring in the kingdom of God all at once. No, he would suffer before he was exalted. 
he would be humiliated before he triumphed. There is no resurrection without the cross. And Joseph's life is such a perfect example of that. We're only at the beginnings of his sufferings here. We're only at the beginnings of his humiliation, his passion. And yet he suffers greatly. But he suffers on the way to glory. He suffers on the way to his own exaltation. And we've got that note here. He ends up in Egypt. We know that that's going to be the way that he's exalted. And there are so many little details even in here that would remind us of Christ to come. Joseph stripped of his royal robes. You know, outwardly, Christ, even though he's God in the flesh, he exhibited no outward glory. He was mistreated by all. His entire life was a life of suffering. Joseph is sold for 20 shekels of silver. You, you can't hear that and not think of Christ. Christ sold for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph cast down into the pit. Well, the story in Genesis is of Joseph continually going down. He's cast into a pit. And then he goes down into Egypt. And then he goes down into another pit. The, the prison, same word, the pit as the word here for pit. Down in the prison in Egypt. He goes down and down and down. If we were in the Psalms, we would see to be brought down into the pit is to be as low as you could be. It is to suffer greatly. And, and Joseph suffers greatly before he is exalted. As true as all of that is, however, the most glorious thing that we see here about Jesus Christ is the way in which Joseph is not like Jesus. Joseph did not have to die before he was exalted. He suffered and he shows us this pattern of suffering and then glory. But Joseph didn't die. Jesus Christ had no one to rescue him from the cross. He couldn't have someone to rescue him from the cross. That's what he came for, was to go to the cross. There was no one to deliver him from that. And Jesus Christ on the cross, he drank down to the bitter dregs, the full foaming cup of God's wrath. For you, for me, in our place, he drank that wrath and he took that wrath fully upon himself. There was no one to deliver him. There was no one to rescue him. He had to suffer the full force of the wrath of God so that we could be saved. And so we learn as much about Jesus from how he is not like Joseph as we do from how he is like Joseph. Jesus Christ took that Punishment, that condemnation on the cross so that sinners could be made right with God, so that we could enjoy peace with God. But as we close, I want to leave you with another uh, point of gospel hope here from this text. And it's this. It's for you in your own experience of suffering. When someone says to you, we will see what will become of this Christian. When they say to you at work, we will see what will become of this Christian who trusts in Christ, who confesses Christ, who's not ashamed of Christ. We'll see what becomes with him when I'm finished with them. 
Now, we'll see what becomes of this Christian who stands on the truth of what God's Word says about how we live our lives, even about our sexuality, to such a, a point of contention in our society. We'll see what becomes of them when I'm finished with them. We'll see what becomes, with them, uh, what becomes of them. And, and if you're not experiencing that right now, if you're not feeling that, again, think of your brothers and sisters throughout the world. Now, the leaders in China who say, we'll see what becomes of the church when we're finished with it, when we've bulldozed their buildings and locked them out and cast them into prison. We'll see in Nigeria what happens when we rampage through the villages of these Christians uh, with our machine guns. We'll see what becomes of them. Well, what, what will become of them? What will become of you? What will become of us as God's people when the attacks of the world come upon us, uh, even though we've done nothing to, to provoke them, nothing to deserve them, what will become of us? It's this. The very attacks of the wicked upon God's people are the very means that God is using to save and to bless you. The attacks of the wicked are the very means that God is using to save and to bless you in his perfect wisdom. That is exactly what we see in Joseph's life. His brothers say, we will see what becomes of his dreams as they attempt to murder him and throw him into this pit and sell him into slavery. We will see what becomes of his dreams. And in the very uh, saying of that, in the very saying of we will see, they are actually fulfilling those very dreams. I mean, isn't that amazing? They are attempting to crush those dreams, and they are the fulfillment of them in God's mysterious and wonderful providence. And that is true for each one of us who is looking to Christ in faith, that no matter what we suffer, no matter what we face, no matter what trials we go through, those are the very means, even when it's the, the unjust suffering at the hands of the wicked, those are the very means that God is using to bring us on the path to heaven, to sanctify us, to grow us in our love of Christ, and to bless us. If you, don't, if, if you struggle to accept this, well, think then, brothers and sisters, of the supreme example of this, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 about Jesus. He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, these men crucified and killed. He was killed at the hands of wicked men. And that murder was the very means of our salvation. The most wicked act in all of human history is the means of bringing about the most glorious truth in all of human history. Christ dying on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. If you trust Christ to use, if you trust God to use that for good, will you not trust him to use everything else, brothers and sisters? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we worship you and we adore you. You are a great God, you are a sovereign God, and you are a good God, and we pray that you would please strengthen us when we are weak to believe these glorious truths that you are a God 
who will use even the wicked attacks of wicked men against us for our good, for your glory, for our salvation. And I pray that in the midst of those, we would remember how good you are. We would remember the salvation that we have in Christ and that we would find joy even in the midst of those trials. And I pray this in Christ's most precious name. Amen.